Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Hermit, what motivates your mindfulness? Whenever you're tired, anxious, frustrated, confused, distracted, or doubtful, what do you say to yourself that reignites your tenacity for study and meditation? I have a few ways. One is to remind myself why I'm doing this. In the secular sense, this is a connection to people and traditions I'd otherwise have no experience with. Meanwhile, in the cosmic sense, well, the house is burning, and I must leave urgently and deliver others from the house if I can. That's an excellent way to remind yourself of why you're devoted to the path. I too often remind myself that this practice pays off, both for myself and others. The one thing I have the most difficulty overcoming is my own forgetfulness. The recitations are long, and I've only been studying them for just a part of this one single lifetime, and I often forget some of the words of the recitations. I know that I will learn them better over time, but for now the words of the Buddha feel unfamiliar to my lips. That is the trouble indeed. We must carve these words on our very hearts, but until we have, they can sometimes become mixed up, or we can sometimes forget them. I don't think that is a moral transgression or a disrespect for the words, but rather it is the learning process. To forget means that you are trying to remember. It is better than not even trying at all. Indeed, a failed attempt must be better than no attempt at all. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism, where we will be discussing the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra, who is known in Chinese as Pushyan, or Fugen in Japanese. Who is Samantabhadra? What are some stories about Samantabhadra? And what sort of devotional texts and rituals are there for him? We hope you enjoy. So, to get started, who is Samantabhadra slash Pushyan slash Fugen? Samantabhadra is one of the most important Bodhisattvas in the Buddhist pantheon, and his name translates to something like universally worthy, or all good, or all virtuous. And he is the bodhisattva who is most associated with devoted meditation and study, devoted practice, and devoted wisdom. He is frequently part of a triad of Buddhas in statuary depiction in temple spaces. There will often be Shakyamuni, or Amida, or Vairachana in the center, Avalokiteshvara or Manjushri on Shakyamuni's right, and Samantabhadra on his left. This arrangement can change depending on what school of Buddhism and what temple space you're dealing with. Nonetheless, Samantabhadra is of great importance to Indian, Tibetan, Sri Lankan, Chinese, and Japanese Buddhism. In Indian Buddhism, like I said, he represents dedication to practice, that is, dedication to meditation and study of the sutras. In Sri Lankan Buddhism, He's regarded as such and also as the guardian and protector of the island of Sri Lanka. In China and Japan, he's regarded also as a protector of those who study and practice the Dharma. In China, he even has a devotional sutra called the Samantabhadra Meditation Sutra, or the Guanpushan Pusa Xingfa Jing, which gives more and more details about how to undergo visualization and devotion to him. In addition to this, in the final chapter of the Lotus Sutra, he is entrusted as the protector of the sutra and all who practice the teaching. 
In the chapter, it is said that if somebody is chanting the sutra and they forget the next word, he will appear on the back of a white elephant and remind them of the next word to continue their mindfulness. To that end, in his statuary and imagery, he's often depicted on the back of a white elephant while doing the praying hands mudra. Samantabhadra is also one of the 13 Japanese esoteric Buddhist deities, or Shingon Buddhist deities, and one of the eight wisdom kings of Vajrayana Buddhism. The wisdom kings are these wrathful deities of Tibetan Buddhism that often appear in groupings of five, eight, or ten, and they are each manifestations of the sacred wisdom inherent in mantra and dharani. They are so-called wrathful because they are meant to be protectors of the dharma and practitioners of the dharma and of the sacred temple spaces. To that end, they're often depicted in extreme and warlike fashions. These wisdom kings are some of the most familiar bodhisattvas we've discussed in East Asian Buddhism, such as Amitabha, Akshobhya, Avalokiteshvara, Vairachana, etc. But there's also some unfamiliar ones, like Ratnasambhava, Vajrapani, and others. I want to go over all of those names at some point, but for now, let's focus on Samantabhadra. So I find it interesting that the bodhisattva of study and meditation also ends up being one of the wrathful wisdom kings. Like That's interesting. The student aspect seems so far away from the warlike aspect. So for one, I'm somewhat questioning the translation of the word wrathful because I'm not sure like that feels like something where the word may not have existed quite right because like I thought Buddhism was supposed to generally regarded anger as a negative mind state. It's good that you pick up on that. These wrathful deities and these wisdom kings are very important and very interesting in Tibetan Buddhism because of their often warlike and violent depictions and violent imagery in statuary and in other visual cultures. It's important to look back probably here to the story of the Buddha's own enlightenment. If we remember, whenever he had tried out all the other ways and he sat down under the Bodhi tree for 49 days, saying to himself at the beginning, I'm going to overcome aging, illness, and death, or die trying, that is often interpreted as a war that he waged against the god of desire, Mara. This is not a war in the conventional sense, as in he took up weaponry and killed a bunch of soldiers, killed a bunch of anything. Rather, it's more an interpretation of his defeat of desire, his defeat of death, his defeat of these things. And so it's often thought of that whenever a person begins to engage in study of the Dharma and practice of the Dharma, they are fighting against and defeating desire. They're defeating unwholesome mind states. They're defeating detractors, those who speak against the Dharma. They're defeating those who mislead you about the Dharma. They're defeating their own nature, which is bent in a negative way because it exists in samsara. It's bent towards delusion, bent towards ignorance, and bent towards all these other negative connotations. And so in that sense, Thinking of them as wrathful acknowledges that we have a lot bearing down on us, standing in between us and enlightenment. And in order to get through those things, we need a lot of strength. And we need protectors who are going to defeat those things and help us defeat those things. And we need to 
understand that at some times this is going to be a very dramatic and very emotionally violent and emotionally and practically violent sort of thing. We've talked about how, I think in the past, how emptiness is one of the more difficult things in Buddhism, not only understanding in a scholarly sense, in a philosophical sense, but also a difficult thing to encounter as a practitioner. If you have to sit there and meditate on the fact that you and no one you love has a soul and whoever you think you are, that's actually a delusion because you're mistaking yourself to be more permanent and be more consistent and be more constant than you actually are, that can cause a lot of scary feelings, right? I'm exaggerating a little bit about how we actually digest that truth because I want to demonstrate that whenever we finally get there, it's scary. It's scary to recognize that emptiness is emptiness, that emptiness is actually empty. And it's very easy from there to fall into nihilism, as I've talked about before. It's very easy to fall into solipsism. And that's not where we want to fall into. That's not where we want to go. It can be very treacherous and very difficult to navigate emptiness or any of these other truths like that without someone to protect you, without someone to show you, reinforce to you that what you're doing is the Dharma, is pure, is the right path. So these wisdom kings kind of exist to ward off demons and jealous gods and jealous ghosts and spirits, and also feelings and mind states that are going to stray you from your concentration, stray you from the path, stray you from correct, perfect wisdom. Okay, so wrathful here, but the word wrathful to me indicates something that is going out and inflicting that wrath on something else. Whereas the word here is more protective and preventative, it feels like. It is from the standpoint of the practitioner. But I do want to emphasize that there is a little bit of religious zeal involved here. For example, Manjushri, one of the other wisdom kings, is also depicted with a sword. So is Akala. There's a couple of them that are depicted with swords. And the purpose of that sword is actually to cut through ignorance, to cut through delusion, to cut through those that might mislead you. So on the one hand, there is like the gentle side of realization, of perfection of wisdom. There is observing impermanence and emptiness by means of meditation, by means of skillful words and delightful speech. And on the other hand, there is also like correcting misconceptions and misperceptions by defeating them, right? So there is peaceful change and then there is, it's, it's not like it's less peaceful, it's just that it's more dramatic, more dramatic change. And the wrathful kings, the wisdom kings, they are assisting you on that end, which is often ignored in the Western perceptions of Buddhism. I think it would be accurate to call that a more violent approach because some of what Buddhist doctrine is trying to get people to deal with is a type of violence against the self. But it seems like it's a violence that is needed, that is part of the process. And so I guess that would be where these bodhisattvas are centered. Exactly. And... Their purpose is to empower the practitioner. It's not like 
any of these bodhisattvas or anybody that you read that writes about these bodhisattvas is saying we should go and beat up everybody that says that people have souls. We, we should go and beat up everybody that says that a soul is indestructible and is singular and is unique to every single sentient being. It's not saying we should go and do that. What it's saying is actually, though the path looks treacherous, though it looks scary, though you will be scared on this path of practice and realization, you have very, very powerful figures in your corner, protecting you and supporting you and at least encouraging you and reinforcing to you that the Dharma is what it is and that you're on the right path. All right. So let's focus in on Samantabhadra some more. So what are some stories about Samantabhadra? There are not many narratives about him in the sutras, but he is the focus of a number of texts which merit some more discussion here. So we'll start with his inclusion in the Lotus Sutra. Samantabhadra and Avalokiteshvara both have entire chapters in the Lotus Sutra, and these chapters are also each independent texts outside of their inclusion in the Lotus Sutra. That means that they are each their own individual devotional sutras, which are chanted by themselves and read and recited and copied by themselves, and they have a life that is separate from the Lotus Sutra. They also are chapters in the Lotus Sutra, and they're included in all of the devotional practices and all of the recitations and all of the activities that happen with the Lotus Sutra. Either way, it is in chapter 28 where we see the story about Samantabhadra appearing on the white elephant to those who forget the text. This whole chapter is Shakyamuni entrusting the protection and the propagation of the sutra to Samantabhadra. He is the protector and the propagator, and he's encouraged to spread the teaching in the Lotus Sutra. His independent text, by the way, just like Avalokiteshvara's text, we have to assume historically, from if we're looking at the history of the Lotus Sutra text, that it was written around the same time, because both of those sutras, independent of their inclusion, mention the teaching of the Lotus Sutra. They refer to it as the Dharma flower teaching. And so we have to assume that these were written as one package, but they do have separate lives, separate from each other. Anyways, this chapter or this sutra is also where Samantabhadra pledges to be the protector and the guardian of the sutra and its students. For this, Shakyamuni prophesized that Samantabhadra will be reborn in the Tushita and the Triatrimsa heavens, and he prophesizes his eventual Buddhahood. Samantabhadra also figures in the Avatamsaka Sutra, or the Flower Garland Sutra. And this is the text where he makes his ten bodhisattva vows, which, given their brevity, can be listed here. They are to pay homage and respect to all Buddhas, to praise the thus come one Tathagata, to make abundant offerings, to repent misdeeds and evil karmas, to rejoice in others' merits and virtues, to request the Buddhas to continue teaching, to request the Buddhas to remain in this world, to follow the teachings of the Buddhas at all times, to accommodate and benefit all living beings, and to transfer all merits and virtues to benefit all beings. I bring these up because these are broadly regarded as the template for other bodhisattva vows. All fully realized Buddhas have at least these vows in their list of vows. Some may have many other vows, such as the construction of a pure land, or some special unique vows regarding their specific domain, such as mercy and compassion for Alavokiteshvara. 
but they still all promise such things as benefiting all sentient beings through merit transfer, making offerings to Buddhas, and so on. What sort of devotional texts and rituals are there for Samantabhadra? As mentioned, there is the Samantabhadra Meditation Sutra. This sutra describes all the visualization and meditations that can be done for the Bodhisattva Samantabhadra. This text is often included with the Sutra of Innumerable Meanings and the Lotus Sutra in a triad, which is called the Threefold Lotus Sutra. By the way, it's important to mention that the reason that the Sutra of Innumerable Meanings is included, because the Buddha preaches that Sutra in the first part of the Lotus Sutra. And that Sutra exists on its own as well, unrelated to the Lotus Sutra. Either way, the Samantabhadra Meditation Sutra discusses contemplations on Samantabhadra's size, the range and volume of his voice, and the forms of his image, all to aid in the visualization of him. We've talked before about how visualization has this connotation with bringing the Buddha to you or bringing you to the Buddha so that you can hear his teaching, hear his prophecy, make an offering to him, and other such things. This is part, I think, of the Mahayana effort to make sense of a world where Shakyamuni Buddha no longer exists, where he has died. His physical body has left us, and we have to figure out how to reach enlightenment without him to lead us there. Either way, this sutra also details the elephant that Samantabhadra frequently rides in on. The Avatamsaka Sutra also has Samantabhadra's 10 Bodhisattva vows, which we've discussed before. In addition to this, Nichiren, the founder of Nichiren Buddhism, as well as many commentators and scholars of Tendai Buddhism in the pre-modern period, have mentioned and discussed encounters with Samantabhadra, or have at least invoked him to protect their commentary and their interpretation of the texts. This means that they've told stories where Samantabhadra has appeared to them to remind them of the teaching, or they have had a part of their sutra that entrusts, not their sutra, but their commentary, to entrust it to him, to be protected and propagated. As for rituals, of course, as with all bodhisattvas, we're meant to bow, make offerings, and offer our homage to Samantabhadra. But there are no rituals that I'm aware of that are any more specific than that. That being said, we should remember that the domains of these particular bodhisattvas often entail what we ought to do to venerate them. For example, to venerate Avalokiteshvara is to be compassionate and kind and to engage in giving and to feel pity and mercy. And in the same way, to venerate Samantabhadra is to study hard and to meditate diligently. Thank you for joining us on our deep dive into the character of Samantabhadra. Join us next week where we discuss a user-submitted question about the Buddhist term poa. What does poa actually mean? Why is it important? How has the understanding of this term changed over time? We hope to see you there. Thank you very much for listening. Thanks for listening. See you next time. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and the voice of Hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of Hermit. And this has been Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com. Tweet us at brightbuddhism. And join us on our Discord server, The Hidden Sangha, link in description. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you very much.